This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. Yesterday, we brought you the story of the long-standing tenants on Jameson Avenue in Toronto facing eviction for using their air conditioners. That highlights a whole raft of issues around renting and this as renting is becoming a permanent option for more and more people. Well, we know that excessively hot apartments can be deadly for older frail and vulnerable people. Hundreds died in last year's heat dome. What about setting a maximum temperature for rental units? And yesterday, the province authorized a rent increase cap more than double the current rate. That'll be 2.5% for 2023. And this applies to rental units created and occupied before November 2018. And never mind 2.5%, rent eviction is apparently a widespread problem that leads to huge increases in rent. And many people are saying that all of this is at least partly because big corporations are buying up rental buildings. And now it's time to tune into the town. Now I'd like to welcome Lauren O'Neill, Senior News Editor of Blog TO, Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village and a former city councillor, and David Crombie, former mayor of Toronto. Hi, everyone. Hello. Hello. Hi, Libby. Hi, guys. Hi. Hi. And it's great to have two people in studio. You know, we're gradually working our way up. Yes. Okay. Well, let us start with... Karen. Hi, Karen. Hi, Libby. Um, so yesterday, uh, when we were dealing with this story, I know that in 2017, the city, uh, there was a motion for to set a maximum temperature, and it is a provincial responsibility. But you were on council then, and, and Kathleen Wynne was in office. So did that go anywhere at all? To be honest with you, Libby, you're testing my memory. And uh, certainly I, um, I mean, I, I, I somewhat remember the discussion about um, temperatures being too, too hot and too cold. And it seemed to me it was really, it was around turning the heat on, I think. Um, but I, so it clearly didn't go as far or anywhere um, if this issue is still emerging as a concern. And um, and to be quite honest, I don't understand why anybody would get evicted for turning on air conditioning. Is it is it because of the energy costs that are consumed? Like, well, why would anybody care if someone had an air conditioning? Well, presumably, it's it's uh, it's the energy cost for people whose uh, utilities are included. Included, but yeah. uh, you know, a lot of people are saying it's just a good way to get them out of there, so uh, the rent can be jacked up. Yeah. Um, so actually, part of the reason why they're being told not to use their air conditioning is because it's in their lease contract that they can't have air conditioning units. So this isn't a building with central AC. These are people who've brought their own air conditioning units in. And for good reason. It's getting excessively hot in these buildings. You need AC. Um, and so some of these people apparently have been doing this for like 20 years and they've been fine, not a peep, nothing. And then all of a sudden, the landlord, the Myriad group comes in and is like, oh, you can't be using these ACs and these units are illegal. They're against the contracts of your lease. And so the company, Myriad Group, has denied that anyone has been evicted. They gave us a statement saying nobody has been evicted. They need to read the paperwork more properly. That's it. So they didn't deny sending eviction notices. But all of these people are saying they received eviction notices. And obviously, like, it all comes at one time. It's a it's a pretty prime real estate location in Parkdale. Parkdale's, you know, gentrifying very fast, unfortunately, as some might say. Um, and, you know, this is what's been happening. Landlords are kind of kicking people out to renovate. But by the time the people come back, the rent is jacked up so high that they can no longer afford it. So that's the whole nature of the rent eviction. It's a really, really unfortunate phenomenon. David, I mean... In in BC last year, six hundred people died. Yeah, 
because of the heat. Yeah, I, I'm, and I'm unclear what the uh, what the legal uh, uh, obligations are. But in this day and age, the notion that you can have a lease that you have to sign that says you're not going to use it or bring in air conditioning, that's just unacceptable to me. I, I don't I'm not sure where where the province or the city is now, but someone should be organizing appropriate legislation, regulatory, regulatory uh, uh, legislation, as it were, uh, and, and to make sure that people can ac- access air conditioning. It's bizarre uh, in this day and age that you can't. And if they're using it uh, for for evictions because they'd like to get higher prices for their places, uh, then that's also unacceptable. I- David, what do you make of this phenomenon that we're seeing of big corporations buying up rental buildings? I mean, uh, we saw the same thing happening with nursing homes to a very deadly effect, I might say. Yeah, and, you're going, and I think see more of it as inflation becomes part of the coal in the fire. Uh, there's a there's a major issue coming already here um, and, and, uh, on the prices of a lot of things, including rental. I think one of the things that re- I think should be remembered about rental uh, is that uh, there was lots of rental for many, many years. A few years back, uh, they uh, knocked out the, the uh, tax benefits or the tax framework within which new rental could be built, rental, uh, uh, purpose-built rental. Um, I think the governments need to go back and take a look at the legislation that allows for more rental to be built and to allow a better tax framework with which land developers would pay attention to. But what about this phenomenon of the corporatization? And then, you know, they bundle these as an asset. I mean, I, I, I don't, is there legislation that would stop that or would, would anybody even want to stop it? There is no legis- well. Uh, there is yeah. no legislation to my to my knowledge, uh, and, and I'm, I'm not sure how to you would what kind of legislation you'd have that that you you might want to use, uh, and I call it per, per, uh, persuasion, moral persuasion. Uh, people don't think that's effective, but very often it can be depending on the company. If it's a big company and it has investment in its own brand, it'll pay attention to what the public is saying. Karen, do you agree? Yeah, I, you know, it's, it's complicated, right? Because we, we know that rent control um, ultimately suppresses the number of units that are built because if you can only make so much money, um, then you, you make decisions to reflect that. And so, but the flip side is that when you lift rent control, the rents go high to catch up. And, and again, in an inflationary environment, they probably go higher than even that because of greed. And so I, I think that this is a period of weathering the storm and unfortunately, there will be people that will be impacted negatively about it. Um, but but I, I don't I, I don't think rent control is a good policy. Um, and I, I you know again, h- how do you build in protections for tenants is 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 the key question. But I, I don't think it's doing it through rent control. Well, do you see this? This is a what we have here is a rent increase cap. Do you see that as rent control? Um, I do actually, um, b- because again, if it, it, it will limit the amount of investment that goes into new buildings and existing buildings. And and I don't think it's fair to have people evicted so that the landlord could do renovations to then jack up the price. Um, but but the reality is I also don't think that people should live in buildings that don't have air conditioning. And so somewhere we have to figure out what that balance is. And um, it's not a straight line. And it is a bit of... Um, it's a bit of a trial and error, to be honest with you, in terms of when we get it right. Lauren, uh, there's been a lot of commentary since yesterday on the approved uh, rental increase cap for 2023 at 2.5%, which is more than double the current one, which is 1.2%. And everybody's saying, you know, pity these poor tenants who are dealing with lots of inflation. But on the other hand, so our landlords, and while we certainly don't want landlords to take advantage of people and to evict them for using their air conditioners, we also don't want to make it so that they lose money. Right. And and it's important to remember that there are a lot of big corporate landlords that are buying up buildings, and they are what I would classify as evil, like just, you know, <laughs> on, on surface value. And then there are lots of people who simply have properties that they're renting out, you know, like a couple renting out their basement to pay the mortgage. You know, there are also landlords that are not evil at all. Um, and so... 
the Ontario government, they announced that, you know, they were more than doubling it from 1.2 to 2.5% rent cap. But they also put in their press release, but, you know, it could have been more. The rate of inflation would have actually made it 5.3%. So you guys are lucky we're not raising it higher, basically. Well, the, was the, the rate of inflation last month was 7.7%. I mean, it's, they're it's, not lying. No, no, not at all. They're they're completely right. Um, it's, it's just also important to note, though, well, the people who are living in units that were occupied as rental units before November of 2018, those are the only people protected here also. So if you moved into any of these brand new condos, um, rental, like for purpose-built rental, anything that was built and occupied after November of 2018, there is no cap. Well, right. Yes, we know that. Yeah, yeah, but I'm just I'm I'm saying so this is a helpful thing like the rent cap, but it's not helpful for everyone. Like it's it only kind of helps people in that specific certain living situation, which is a lot of people, but I it would be nice to see kind of wider protections. Um but if if you're living in a place that that was done 2018 or later, it probably doesn't need to be renovated just yet. No. No, that's just, uh, that's a harder case to make. No, ab- absolutely. And I think the renovation thing is a whole other, like you were saying, all of these uh, companies buying up buildings and renovating them. So the rent cap, it basically, whether your building's new or old, it has nothing to do with renovating it. It's just caps how much they can raise it per year. But these rent evictions are when they come in and they say, yeah, we're renovating the whole building. Um, You have to get out for a year and a half. Um, Go live wherever you want. You have like the right of first refusal for when your unit becomes available again, three times the price. And, And that is just like, like you say, unacceptable. It's 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 ridiculous that that's allowed. Well, it, I think it is, and I think it's going to get worse for people. Mm-hmm. So I think it it is appropriate for governments now, um, and I think in particular the province, but for governments now to look at how they might be able to have at least some temporary relief while we're going through an inflation spiral. Well, and, yeah, I mean, we hear from the city, from the mayor, they're talking about affordable housing all the time, and a lot of people have referred to that. It's from the Harris era, where if if an apartment has been vacant, you can charge whatever you like. Uh, some people refer to that as a loophole. Karen, is that a loophole or what? No, I, no, I don't think it's a loophole because I think what you don't want to have is a situation that they have in New York, where um, certain apartments are never vacated. Uh, they're just there. There, there's you know arrangements that continue on because that's you know, the only way that people and then people live in very cheap rent. And, you know, again, I, I just I have to kind of pause. I don't think that corporations who buy up apartment buildings are necessarily evil. Uh, that's, um, that's good. I don't think they're all evil they're either, all but, evil. Yeah. but some of them probably are. Some of them are evil, <laughs> sure. sure. I mean, um, I would but, characterize them as evil. They're yeah, not necessarily I mean, evil. <laughs> they run a business. And, yeah. um, you know, I've, there's certainly some apartment buildings that are run as businesses that are, that are quite good. Um, you know, and again, it's hard. Like, if, if, if part of the government's challenge, too, is making sure that these buildings don't run down to the point where you have a situation like you have in Vancouver where they're, they're actually uninhabitable. And that doesn't happen here. Um, but we want to we make sure that we don't take away the incentives to continue to uh, make improvements to buildings because ultimately that's where people, that's, that's where people call their home. And there, there has to be a bit of give and take. And, and they, people pay to renovate their homes. Like people do pay money to continue to invest in their homes and building operators and owners should be expected to continue to rent and invest in those buildings. That's true too. Oh, for sure. And the, and the city, the city has minimum standards, but that, that they have to uh, approach at any rate. So uh, maybe there's some value in looking what those standards are today and, and maybe they need to be changed for, for sure. But I, but I think that, that they, it, it's always a delicate balance because you want the supply to continue. So if you, if the return isn't there for those who develop, uh, then, then there, there won't be the supply. So things will be worse. So you, you, you can't, you're not going to make everybody a hundred percent happy. The trick is to figure out what's the balance that allows most people to live with what they've got. Yeah. And it's interesting because before we had these huge spikes in the cost of real estate here in Toronto uh, and in Ontario, renting was always seen as, you know, something you did when you were young. It was not a permanent thing. And say in Montreal, people rent their whole lives and it runs kind of differently. But this is happening as we as a society are trying to tell people, you know, no problem, you know, if you are a renter. 
It's it's wild. You know, growing up, I always assumed that I would, you know, go to university, get a good job and, and buy a house and have a family. And uh, it's become very apparent to everyone in my generation that that is not possible, not here. So we're seeing a lot of people, uh, millennials leaving Toronto because we, they just can't afford property. So you have to kind of make the choice, you know. Do you want to rent forever or own a home? For some people, they do, and they'll move to Guelph or somewhere else. But, I mean, I see no problem in renting at all, like, for life. And I think that that's just kind of something that we've had to resign ourselves to accept. Um, it's It sucks because you're not making any capital. Like, you're not building up an investment uh, on that. But, I mean, what else are you going to do? I love Toronto, and I want to live here. And I don't necessarily want to live in a very, very tiny 400-square-foot condo. So, I mean... Yeah, it's with the average house price over a million dollars, you need at least $200,000 for a down payment. I know that. So, yeah, I mean, I'm okay to rent forever. You know, YOLO. I love love the city and I want to stay here. But it it is fair to say that that, uh, rental for most of people's life cycles in the past were temporary events, right, at certain stages, in a sense, beginning of adulthood at the end. (laughs) <laughs> the, but, but rental was 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 uh, not considered to be the what what you did generally speaking for your living years. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's changing for sure. That's changing. That's why I mentioned earlier that I think the government needs to pay attention to the, the tax framework within which developers can develop rental housing because they're going to need not only more, uh, but it's just pointed out it needs to be a different kind. So we need to insist on rules locally. Uh, uh, that make sure that they're the appropriate size, that they're two and three bedroom as opposed to single 480 square feet and all of that. There needs to be a very strong change in the way in which government is approaching housing. Well, and you know, this has been happening. We're here in Liberty Village. And again, uh, you know, when I was younger, a condo was something that you did before you had a family. There are tons of families and condos and apartments you know, right in our neighborhood. And I've lived in places uh, like New York and Tel Aviv where that was always the case. You didn't have to have a single family home to have a family. Right. Exactly. And I, the, the, the variety of choice needs to be expanded. So there's, I think big changes are coming. Driven again by by uh, uh, by inflation, which is not going to go away early. I know some people think it's just a short stopgap thing, but it's not. It's going to be here for a while. And certainly, as it's housing, uh, prices and housings uh, uh, are are just going to be beyond people's reach. Which is why the government needs to do far more than it's doing now. I might say, by the way, the go- the question is not only supply. The current provincial government keeps on talking about. More housing, more supply will bring down the prices. That is not true in housing. The government needs to intervene to make housing affordable in a variety of ways from co-op to nonprofits and so on. Hmm. Karen, um, the government talks about, you know, saying yes to housing, but I think uh, a lot of people say they're just saying yes to developers. Well, yeah, because developers build housing. So, you know, I, you know, I think, and there's always, again, that balance of, you know, the kind of housing that we're, that we're going to be building because, you know, we can, we can build a lot of housing, but is it going to be the 400 square foot condo that um, ultimately is not able to meet life needs to your point? Like if, if, if we're moving to a place where it's, you raise your family in a condo, then how are we going to, how are we going to manage that? And as much as Adam Vaughn used to drive me absolutely insane, he, (laughs) that makes two of us. (laughs) You know, he did. He was he was very progressive in pushing the mo- the notion that um, condos had to build um, units where you could um, you could be able to break down the wall and make two units into one. So as your family expanded, it was kind of the equivalent of a renovation in your condo. If you could afford to buy out the next condo, then you could collapse the wall and actually create a bigger living unit. People and do that, but that rich people do yeah. that. For sure. Yeah, and so I don't know. You know, to be honest with you, I don't know how it played out because it was, you know, it was something that was introduced when I was on council. Um, but the, but those are the kinds of things that, again, I think are creative ways to to to, to help manage um, people. Because again, what we also learned when we redeveloped certain areas, uh, like Regent Park, like we wanted to make a mix of housing. So we didn't just create affordable housing in one section or one block or one you know, one area, but you created mixed housing so that you could actually build communities. 
because the goal is that people don't stay in affordable housing or subsidized housing, but that they can move on into some other, you know, co-op or not-for-profit or then move into um, a small ownership uh, unit. But the way to do that and build community is to make it all available in one community. And, and that's what we need to continue to expand on. Uh, moving right along, uh, the mayor met with the premier. Um, that relationship seems to be good. Yesterday, was it yesterday that uh, Toronto got a lot of money to combat gang violence? Uh, so it looks like uh, the city is at least being heard, getting some money. I, all, all I know is what I read in the papers, as it were. So, I, I, but, but it seems to me that there's there's no daylight between the premier and the premier's office and the and and the mayor's office. And that's a good thing. Um, we we don't have to look very far. Just look south and see what happens if we let it get out of control. Lauren. I, you know, I was impressed with that press conference. Like they seem really chummy and almost like friends. And, and I know, I don't know if that's necessarily what you want from your politicians, but it's really nice to see the province and the city working together so well. And Definitely. clearly Toronto is seeing investments from the province by way of money. And, and I mean, what more could you ask for? Um, I, I just think it was, it was kind of crazy to see these two former political opponents and rivals now are just like besties up there on stage. You know what I noticed, Karen, and I don't know, maybe I'm just being, I don't know, this is trivializing things, but the, <laughs> the, 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 the premier's appointment of his nephew to cabinet, the mm-hmm. former city councillor, was very controversial. Uh, and uh, a lot of people are saying, you know, that could go back to bite him. I think he can do whatever he wants for at least a couple of years. But uh, the mayor came out and, and said nice things about the nephew and said, give him a chance. And I thought, you know what? That's really smart. That probably buys him a lot of capital with Doug Ford. Oh, no question. No question. I mean, the one thing that we do know about Doug above all else is that he values loyalty. And uh, so for, for, Tory to come out and say that for sure goes a long way. And, um, you know, I don't know. I didn't work with Councillor Ford. Um, he was elected after I left council. You know, I hear he's actually pretty reasonable. And um, there's all, all appointments are political. <laughs> I don't know why anybody was exercised about this one. <laughs> oh, so I do hope he does well in his portfolio. Um, and I, I, I agree with Tory. Give the kid a chance. Everybody is laughing here. And, uh, <laughs> well, no, as long as there's peace and tranquility in the Ford family, I think we should be yeah. thankful. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I think it was just the optics, you know. A 28-year-old white guy is appointed the Minister of Multiculturalism. Yeah, and uh, that, like, that oh. too. Um, you know, and it's it's the Premier's nephew. But like like Karen said, I've heard nothing but good things about the guy, to be honest. Like, people are saying, like, like Kristen Wong Tam tweeted support for him, being like, you know, we may disagree politically, but he's a great guy, and so I mean, oh, let's see I how. Didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so let's see how he does. I mean, he, it's it's easy to want to judge right away nepotism and stuff, but apparently he is a hardworking. I, I want to say kid. He's not that much younger than me, but you know, he's he's a young guy and he tries hard. No, I, I'm listen. I don't. The age doesn't bother me. I think that's just fine. And that fact that he's related to the premier. I can remember years ago when uh, John Kennedy appointed uh, his brother Bobby as the Attorney General of the United States. Right. There are a lot of people uh, saying that's nepotism. That's a really bad thing. But on the other hand, uh, he was a great attorney general. And as people said, there's nothing wrong with the attorney general knowing the president of the United States. I don't think there's anything wrong with the uh, with the premier of the province uh, having a nice relationship uh, with the uh, with the minister of multiculturalism. It should be helpful. Okay, well, uh, we'll we'll see how that works out. I mean, I thought, you know, I just it just struck me when John Tory was doing that. I thought there will be people move. there will be people in the government caucus, yeah, uh, uh, who will sure. be looking down at their boots and doing some grumbling. But but I, there it is. I mean, I, it is what it is. He he needs someone he thinks he can trust in it. Fair enough. Governments are about trust. I know that sounds odd to people's ears. So mm-hmm. it's a it's an important ministry. I know it doesn't sound that somebody. So I think it's a good that's a good thing. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, speaking of all of that, because the, the on the provincial side, people say, well, there's he has a huge caucus 
A lot of people have been there for a while. They'll be miffed that they're not getting anything. But then he announces how many, like 40-some-odd parliamentary assistants. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I know. I think only three conservatives didn't get something. <laughs> <laughs> well, l- literally. And, and yeah. they get, I mean, the cabinet ministers get a bump of nearly 50K. And the parliamentary assistants, I think it's 16,666. Uh, don't quote me on that. I have to look it up. So um, that's a lot of people getting a little bit of, I guess, uh, an honorific and and some money. You know, an inflation pay bump or something, I guess. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the the one that surprised me is Raymond Cho, that he's still in that portfolio because I'm like, good Lord, it's time. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm happy to judge them by what they do and not necessarily how they might look at the start because it's interesting (laughs) to me that been my experience over the years, the people who were really, you didn't pay much attention to, did a really good job. And so I I think people, I hope people give the new cabinet uh, enough, uh, I was going to say enough rope, but they, I don't want to finish that, uh, but give enough slack and give them an opportunity to see what they can do. My feeling is that they're going to be visited with tremendous problems in the next short while. We've been through one of them on housing, but others. And so we need a cabinet that's going to work together and uh, we'll give them a chance I think we give them a chance yeah well we only have a few minutes left and since we're talking about the cabinet uh, what about the Minister of Municipal Affairs I mean um, uh, we've got Highway 413 coming up <laughs> no, no and a number he's going to have a number of issues on I've, I've uh, as you know uh, because you and I've talked about it before uh, 413 is a major, major issue, and, and the government is wrong, simply wrong and destructive, uh, destructively wrong. Uh, so that minister is a good minister. He's a good, a good, good public representative, but he's wrong. And so we have to show them that he's wrong and show them the error of his ways. Uh, and uh, there's also the transport minister, Carolyn Mulrooney. Uh, Karen, uh, is that highway going to get built? Oh, I don't know. I, I not not if not if David Crombie's against it. <laughs> <laughs> but but I you know I do think that the um, the housing pressures are real, and and I think that one of the reasons that John Tory and Doug Ford are so uh, kissy kissy huggy huggy is because they need each other to fix the housing issue. Right on. And, good good for you. Yep. You know, and the the other thing that John does not want is he does not want the provincial government exerting its authority over planning um, at the expense of council. So, you know, my hope is that he'll fix kind of some of the bottlenecks in the city so that they can retain that authority, because I think the city needs to be, you know, maintaining its planning authority over local development. Um, But it it also has an emerging issue that can't they can't solve on their own. Yeah. And uh, while we're on that subject uh, and before we go, uh, so uh, you just noticed that there's this huge cabinet and parliamentary uh, parliamentary assistance. The numbers have mushroomed. And this after this is the government that unilaterally in the middle of an election cut the number of city council seats. No, <laughs> that's a nice piece of irony. Good for you for recognizing it because absolutely 30, I think, is in the cabinet, which is a large cabinet. Yeah. Uh, cabinets increasingly are larger, least more complicated, I guess, and governing is more complicated. But yes, um, there's uh, at least uh, Ford's got in his, or Premier Ford has got in his mind that there should be a job for everybody. And I hope that philosophy is applied to all of us. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, do you have anything to say about that? I do not. <laughs> okay. I'm going to give the last word to you, Lauren. I, I don't really have anything to say with that. I just think that's that's clever that you uh, yeah, pointed that out. I didn't even think about that. It's such a huge cabinet, and, and people were really, really mad when you know they cut back the number of counselors. So, yeah, it's a kind of an ironic twist. Here. Okay. Well, it went to court, and uh, yeah. one of the maxims of politics, how quickly we all forget. Ab- mm, absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, that is that is it for the panel this week. Thank you so much, Karen Stintz, Lauren O'Neill, and David Crombie. Thanks, Thanks Libby. Thanks, guys. Thank you. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, another thing to worry about. If you've had COVID and you're over 50, there's a higher risk of getting shingles. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. 
Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. All this week I've been talking about my own observation, and it's totally anecdotal, that a lot of people, at least people that I know, are still getting COVID. Well, here's another thing to worry about. A new study finds that if you're over 50 and you get COVID, you are more likely to come down with shingles in the six months after you have the virus. Here are the numbers to call if you have questions. 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And now let's go to Dr. Craig Jenny, Associate Professor in the Department of Microbiology, Immunology, and Infectious Diseases at the University of Calgary. Hi, Dr. Jenny. Hello. So what is the risk and how did this study come to that conclusion? Well, the risk is somewhat elevated for for the first six months following recovery from COVID. So this is for people that have been previously exposed, often in childhood, to chickenpox. So the, the shingles virus is exactly the same virus as chickenpox. And when you've had it the first time, as often as a child, you clear the virus, you, you clear the, what, what appears to be the disease, but that virus is never completely gone from your body. It goes into this silent phase known as latency, and it can reactivate later in life. And that's where these shingles come from. So what we've been observing is that people that have tested positive for COVID or reported being positive for COVID, unfortunately, are seeing a slightly higher rate of shingles in those first six months after they've recovered from COVID. And uh, is the SARS-CoV-2 virus related to the to to the chickenpox virus? I mean, no. I mean, that, that's the interesting thing. These are not even remotely related. Uh, likewise, there's no part of the vaccines. Even if you had the the AstraZeneca vaccine early, it's not remotely related to this chickenpox or the shingles virus. But what we know is that people tend to get shingles when their immune system gets stressed. So when their immunity begins to fade and their immune system is not functioning at the best. So we often see older individuals as their immune system begins to wane with age. If they get stressed, which further suppresses immunity, that's when this virus can reactivate. And what we're learning from COVID is that, you know, it's, it's a rough disease. It's putting the body through a lot. And that stresses the body that exhausts the immune system, and that's providing this window for, for a virus you may be carrying to reactivate. The other little piece of it is that we are also learning that other conditions such as long COVID are actually partly due to the fact that your immune system is suppressed after recovery. So we have lots of evidence that if you get COVID and you recover, your immune system doesn't bounce back to normal right away. It takes a little time, and that provides this opportunity for shingles to, to activate. So uh, what can people do in general to boost their immune systems if they're recovering from COVID? So there's actually a lot of strategies that can be used. So one is obviously trying to make sure good nutrition, good rest, taking vitamins if you're on a normal supplement. So things like that, just trying to ensure overall good health, sleep, stress, the big ones. But we also have to remember that there are some very effective vaccines against shingles. So if you're of the at-risk age group and you qualify for vaccination, we know that those do continue to work even if you've recovered from COVID. So it's a combination of making sure you're doing the best for your body, keeping your immune system up, but also if you've had chickenpox to consider getting that shingles vaccine. Should people uh, be running out and getting the shingles vaccine as soon as they recover? I mean, the new one, which is much more effective, the two-dose shingles Mm -hmm. vaccine, uh, it also makes people sick, mostly, that I know. Yeah, so this is where individuals would have to talk with their primary health care provider. Talk to your doctor. They know what the best particular vaccine formulation would be for you and whether you're in the age group that requires that vaccine. So it's not a, not a panacea. It's not everybody that gets COVID should run out and get a shingles vaccine. But there are risk groups and age groups that, that in particular would benefit. And, and really, that's a great segue, a great opportunity to sit down with your family doc and say, look, I, I've seen this evidence, you know, am I at risk? And, and what can I best do to help prevent that? Uh, the other question that I get a lot about the shingles vaccine, so people who had the original shingles vaccine, which is less effective, should they be looking at getting uh, the better shingles vaccine? 
Yeah, we, we don't have that granularity yet from the COVID study. So we do know that, that there are different shingles vaccines and they perform differently, particularly in different age groups. So, so one may be better for one patient, whereas the other formulation is better for another. So it's not a universal one's better than the other. It really does break down to, to risk and age group. Um, but we have a, we, we generally have an older audience here. Yeah, no, no, I, I understand that. But again, there are individuals, for example, one of the shingles vaccine is a live vaccine and it's not, not designed for everybody. So you, you have to have that conversation with your healthcare provider to make sure the vaccine is matched to you. Um, unfortunately, we don't have enough data yet, enough time from COVID to know whether one vaccine is more protective than the other. But we do know that in general, vaccination does lower that risk. One may lower it more than the other, but either one uh, of the two platforms is significantly lowering that risk. Okay. So, uh, you know, these days, I know a lot of people getting COVID and I think in general, they're probably recovering at home, even though, you know, it's not trivial, they're sick. But I think that uh, what you're saying boils down to uh, it's, it's worth having a good conversation with your doctor as you're recovering. Absolutely. Particularly when you do get to the age of, of qualifying for these shingles vaccines, whether you've had COVID or not, there's a lot of shingles out there. It, it unfortunately has been on the rise for a number of years. And we think that's due to the fact that traditionally children have had chickenpox and that served as our booster. So when we were adults or, or grandparents, your grandchildren would have chickenpox. They would be your booster. You'd be re-exposed. We don't see that anymore because we're vaccinating the kids against chickenpox. So there has been a, a good reason to, to get a shingle shot prior to COVID. And now COVID has really honestly amplified that as the risk has gone up significantly. Okay. Anything else you'd like to leave us with? No, I think it's just whenever there is a question, you know, do not hesitate to, to talk to your, your uh, family health care provider. They are there for that and they want to help. Mm, if you have a family health care provider. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's a whole other segment. Thank you so yeah. much, that, Dr. Craig Denny. Yes. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are taking another break. And when we come back, uh, good news and bad news on the roads. Uh, good news, that gas tax cut kicks in tomorrow. I hope you didn't just fill in today. I had to fill up yesterday, but whatever. Uh, But dangerous driving is on the rise when we return. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Given the ongoing chaos at our airports, uh, in addition to delayed and canceled flights, there is likely to be more driving than ever this summer, although the high cost of gas is putting a damper on that, too. There is good news on that front. This morning, the premier re-announced his previously promised gas tax cut, which takes effect tomorrow, July 1st, Canada Day, and adds up to 5.7 cents a liter. Meanwhile, dangerous driving is on the rise. The CAA finds that 98% of drivers in the province had witnessed unsafe driving behaviors last year. That is up from the previous year. So what do you think? Um, What does this gas tax cut mean to you? Are you going to be maybe a little keener on taking a driving trip? The numbers to call 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And I am joined by Michael Stewart, Community Relations Consultant, for Government and Community Relations at the CAA, and Roger McKnight, Chief Petroleum Analyst with NPRO International. Hello and welcome. Hello. Hello. Roger McKnight, uh, so first of all, this gas tax cut, uh, how is it going to translate into the price at the pump? Well, there's two sides to the drop. There's going to be the drop, as announced by Premier Ford some time ago, of 5.7 cents a litre. Then the other side of the coin is that market forces south of the border are going to drive it down even further. So it'll be more than 5.7 cents a litre. Matter of fact, I'm calling for a drop of 11 cents a litre at one minute past midnight uh, on Friday. Yippee! (laughs) 
Yeah, and it, it could get better because the, the way things are going, I can see another six cents uh, coming on on, on Saturday. Uh, the way the way things are going uh, south of the border, things are really uh, changing rapidly. Okay, I'm trying to think of what it was today. Was it back up to two oh five or or? Yeah, it was two oh five. We're going down to one ninety four, basically uh, at a minute, uh, tomorrow morning. Okay, well that sounds that sounds good. Uh, and and Roger, would you expect that? How do you expect that to um, impact? You know, uh, driving. Are people going to drive more? You think? I think uh, people are getting a bit leery now. They're sort of peeking over their shoulder every once in a while to see what uh, what politics are involved in the price of liter of gas. So they have geopolitics that are outside the control of uh, of this country, and you. You have a, a, a politics south of the border that are going to uh, force prices down uh, down there. Don't forget the prices in gasoline prices in Canada and diesel prices in Canada are not made in Canada. Okay, the 49th parallel does not exist as far as that's concerned. If if prices go down in the wholesale market in the United States, say in Buffalo or Rochester for the Toronto market, then they'll they'll go down they'll go down here too. So. It's a, it's a wait and see. I think uh, consumers may be a little bit skeptical. The uh, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. The government giveth and the government taketh away. So this this tax uh, break could come back to haunt them again in, in December because he's only said it's a six month thing. But take it while you can and enjoy the weekend. And the, the prices are really starting going to tumble on Saturday. Okay, well, that sounds good, Michael Stewart. But in the meantime, we're seeing more dangerous driving. I can attest to that. Yes. Uh, so according to our new survey, uh, 98% of Ontario drivers witnessed unsafe driving behaviors in the past year, which is actually up 3% from last year, which could explain why we have less drivers who are feeling safe on our roads, specifically on highways with speed limits of 100 kilometers an hour. That dropped 6% from last year's survey to this year's survey. And, and why? Are they saying that that speed limit is, is not high enough or too high? What's the issue there? So one possible reason uh, is we are seeing an inc- that we are seeing an increase in unsafe driving behaviors is because traffic is returning to pre-pandemic levels. So perhaps there's more vehicles on the road or even more people due to issues with flying are choosing road trips or just exploring their communities again uh, by car or going to events. So no matter what the reason is, we just want to remind people to follow the rules of the road and obey posted speed limits. Okay. I am going to take a call from Ron in Guelph. Hi, Ron. Hi, Libby. Thanks for taking the call. Well, I can agree with Mr. Stewart. Um, I've been driving all my life, highway coaches on every highway in North America. And right now, um, part of the problem is lack of driver training. Um, part of it, as I said, from you go from the Oshawa to Milton and north to Barry, and it seems like everybody wants to be on a racetrack, right? Uh, so, I guess so. Ron, you said you wanted to say something about gas. Well, the gas is going down, but not anywhere near, you know, I mean, it's uh, it's going down 10 cents. Um, I've got to travel to Ottawa and then down to see my son in Montreal. And um, I'm more leery of driving through Toronto. Um, and I'm an experienced driver than I am anywhere else. Just because of I'm trying to do between 100 and 105. And even with heavy traffic, there are still drivers think that they can weave in and out at 125 without any consequences, right? Yeah. And the consequences, unfortunately, with the traffic being that congested, the consequences, you never see just a a small one-car collision. When the collisions are out there, they're usually multi-car collisions because you've got um, four or five vehicles involved at the speeds that they're they're traveling. Nobody can stop quick enough in case of an emergency. Okay, Ron. Thanks for your call. Uh, the number is 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740. And, Roger, do you expect uh, the chaos at our airports to have an impact, you know, ultimately on the price of gas, but the people who are driving, the numbers? Um, yeah, the, the demand numbers uh, are, are sort of sort of strange. Uh, as a matter of fact, that's that's what prices are, have been uh, based on is the anticipated high demand because uh, of uh, of the, the the price of of crude oil. But 
demand is actually, believe it or not, falling off. And we call it, uh, you know, it, it's, it's erosion, uh, erosion at the pump. Uh, the pump price is so high that people are not taking filling up at, uh, uh, at, filling up at once. They're sort of uh, spreading it out. So that's, uh, created a demand destruction, as we call it, and as a matter of fact, the demand for gasoline, uh, diesel, and jet fuel is actually starting to fall in the United States, and uh, refinery runs are increasing. So that's put everything sort of in balance here, which is why we're seeing a sort of a, a, a sort of a cascading of prices right now. But how long that will last, goodness knows. Hmm. Um, Michael Stewart, I, I want to get back to this dangerous driving. Uh, what are the main dangerous driving behaviors that you found? Yes, so of those 98% of drivers who had witnessed unsafe driving behaviors, uh, the most common ones that were seen were speeding, aggressive driving, unsafe lane changes, and distracted driving. But what's more concerning for us is that we had more than half actually admit to uh, doing those behaviors themselves. So we had 43% of drivers who admitted to speeding, which is actually up a bit from last year, which is concerning. So that's why we just want to remind folks, especially ahead of the long weekend, uh, to follow the rules of the road and to think about safety and to follow posted speed limits. Well, I mean, are, are there more people speeding or more people fessing up? So this one did have an increase of about 1% compared to last year, which I know doesn't seem like a lot, but when you look at how many drivers there are on the road, and considering the province did introduce new legislation last year to help deter speeding, there's automated speed enforcement as well to help deter speeding. So the fact that that trend is still going up is concerning. Uh, whether it is pe- more people willing to admit or more people doing it, that's difficult to say. But either way, we do want just to remind all drivers that the rules of the road are there to keep themselves and others safe. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh- are, is is the fact that there are some people who are starting to feel unsafe, will that keep them off the road? Whether that keeps them off the road or not, that's difficult to say. Uh, people do have to drive to either get to work or to whichever destination. So whether they will keep them off the road or not, uh, that's difficult to say. But what we do know is that more pe- as more people are starting to return to driving from the pandemic, uh, maybe a refresh of road safety reminders and what the laws are would be beneficial. So just taking that time to remind yourself of what the rules of the road are and what roles you play as a driver would go a long way. Yeah, I mean, I encounter uh, situations where people clearly don't know what the rules are, especially in terms of three-way stop signs or four-way stop signs, who has the right of way, cutting people off. Uh, It can be pretty scary sometimes. I'm going to uh, take a couple of calls now. We've got Nelson in Strathroy. Hello, Nelson. Good afternoon. Thanks for taking my call. You're very welcome. Um, my comment, and this goes along, I think, just in life in general on everything. Everybody has this uh, concept of me first and everyone else fall behind me. Um, if everybody thought of, of treating everybody equally and the consideration of everyone else on the road or, or even in the airport, and uh, if I treated others as badly, or if everyone treated me as badly as I'm treating others, how would I feel? Good thought, Nelson. Thanks for your call. Let's go to Bob in Etobicoke. Hi, Bob. Hi, how are you? Fine, how are you? What I I find is that today we have, because of high, high wages in certain industries, and we have younger people now buying these cars that have tremendous speeds available, which they didn't have. Now, like I've I've put a, quite a few miles. I think I've driven enough kilometers to go to the moon a couple of times and back. I'm 80 years old. I do. I am a high speed driver. I drive uh, quite um, quite a lot on the highway, and um, I usually do about 120 is average on. So you're uh, speeding. You're speeding yeah, well, then. I know that, but you're allowed to go 124. So, but now we've got the 110 kilometer speed limits in Niagara Falls, and what they found is on those higher speeds, they have no more accidents, and there's not as much trouble. So they're increasing the speeds on a lot more highways because of it. But what we need is 
my view is you really don't know how to drive until you've got about 150,000 kilometers under your belt. And you get these kids that are getting a new car that's got unlimited. My son-in-law has got uh, uh, 300. Yeah. Bob, uh, uh, we're running out of time here. Uh, I don't know about uh, driving 120 kilometers. Uh, that's that's speeding. I don't think that's safety advice. But uh, thanks for your call. Um, so let us just uh, get to what all of this amounts to. Uh, Michael Stewart, uh, what would you like to leave us with? Yes. Uh, so first, I would just like to clarify uh, anything that is above the posted speed limit is technically speeding. Uh, so I believe the 124 comment yeah. was wrong. Uh, there is a that yes, that <laughs> is wrong. But there are lesser penalties for going that much above the speed limit. It's after the 125 mark where you do start to get more intense penalties. So I think that's where the common misconception is. But well, right, and that. it's it's not stunt driving at 125, but it's it's not a good thing. No, it's not stunt driving. That's uh, 50 kilometers over the speed limit on highways or 40 kilometers over the speed limit on roads that are less than 80 kilometers an hour. But yes, technically anything over a speed over the posted speed limit is technically speeding and you could still receive a speeding ticket for it. So just want to leave you with that of just that reminder of focusing on the road, focusing on road safety. And uh, with those in mind, hopefully everyone can have a safe and happy long weekend. Okay, and Roger McKnight, uh, you know, speeding, uh, you burn up more gas, right? Well, from from the last 10 minutes, all I can say is it looks like the demand for gasoline is not being uh, intimidated by prices whatsoever. As a matter of fact, it looks like people are speeding up using even more. So I guess gasoline is almost an, an essential essential service. I'd, I'd say treat it wisely and uh, I look for prices to drop dramatically over the next uh, three days. Okay, and uh, how long will that drop? Is that going to last, you think, all the way to December? Oh, gosh, no, no. He'll, uh, he'll come up with a different, a different name for a tax, or a politician will come up with a different name for a tax, but it'll come back. But really, the, the price of the pump is not in the, in the control of the, of the Canadian government in general. It's, it's factors outside that are, are really uh, affecting it. So I would, uh, I would say... Uh, Take it week by week, and this is going to be a good week coming up, so enjoy it. Okay, thank you so much, Roger McKnight and Michael Stewart, and happy Canada Day. (laughs) Okay. And that is all the time we have for today. Now, Free for All Canada Day is coming up tomorrow. I will be here. We'll talk about whatever you want to talk about. We'll talk tomorrow. And if you didn't have a chance to get through this week or if there's something else, hopefully it'll be a beautiful day. I look forward to it. And that's all the time we have for today. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.